0: If this is your first time listening, I strongly suggest beginning with Episode 1, A Murder Most Foul. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Cavalry Audio So we ended last episode with a question. Admittedly, a loaded question. Was the Gauber Christian Fellowship Group that Michael and Christine Taylor joined in the spring of 1974 a cult? Let's answer that question right now. The answer, in my opinion, is no. But it's a strange, definition-specific gray area that's worth exploring a bit. By definition, a cult has nothing to do with organized religion. I'm sure the argument can and has been made That all of organized religion is a cult, but that's a different subject. A cult is a social group that promotes specific philosophical beliefs and shares among its members some common interests, whether those interests be social, spiritual, maybe a specific object or the desire to achieve a common goal, or a person. Some use the term religious cult, but it seems disingenuous to add that qualifier because it then fundamentally changes the definition of the word cult. A little informal research led me to an interesting article, entitled, Ten Signs You're Probably in a Cult. Going through them only reinforces the idea that religious groups, on the whole, are not cults. Does the leader have ultimate authority? While it might seem like your priest or rabbi or imam does indeed have ultimate authority— They really don't. You're allowed to disagree, criticize, ignore them, change churches whenever you feel like it. Is skepticism suppressed? Again, no. Although critical thinking isn't always encouraged, new ideas are often welcomed and argued thoughtfully. The list goes on about shame cycles and the delegitimization of former members, financial transparency, and secret rights, all of which can be easily argued against where organized religion is concerned. But there is one red flag from the list. There is one consideration that, as it involves the Michael Taylor case, we can't ignore. And the question they asked is this. Is the leader above the law? Are there different moral standards that exist for the leader that the followers can't enjoy or exploit? Well, kinda. Let's meet the leader of the Gauber Christian Fellowship Group. But before we do that, I'd like you to picture in your mind what you think the leader looks like. Come up with a physical description, maybe even an archetype. I took part in this little thought experiment when I first heard of this case, and here's what I came up with my mind immediately, right or wrong, went to the great and murderous cult leaders of the past. I know, not a cult, but still, I'm just being honest. Jim Jones and the Kool-Aid thing, David Koresh of the Branch Davidian tragedy, the crazy-eyed guy from the Heaven's Gate cult disaster, even Charles Manson, all were young, charismatic guys, not always particularly handsome or sexy or even traditionally attractive but they had something that drew people to them. I should say that drew certain types of people to them. With Manson, it was displaced hippies looking for a surrogate family. The Heaven's Gate leader attracted conspiracy theorists, especially when it came to alien abduction. So my archetype for the leader of not just the Garber Group in Yorkshire, but really for any group of charismatic Christians that practiced speaking in tongues and laying of hands and spiritual healing. He was something of a David Koresh type, interesting looking, a feeling of masculinity and power, intellectual in ways out of the ordinary. Are we on the same page here? Because I was completely wrong. From Cavalry Audio, this is The Devil Within. Episode 3 The Course of True Love Never Did Run Smooth Marie Robinson was a 22-year-old self-described normal Jesus freak and member of Reverend Peter Vincent's flock at the St. Thomas Anglican Church in Yorkshire County. She was young and vivacious with soft features and chestnut hair cut in a bob. Pictures of her online reveal a pretty, smiling face confident and hopeful happy and full of promise definitely not what I pictured in my mind when I first considered who the leader of the Gauber group was and especially what was initiated by them so again young Marie Robinson was just 22 years old when she volunteered to the Reverend Peter Vincent to run a weekly home group that serviced St. Thomas's and the surrounding area and it was then that Marie could wear a new title, that of lay preacher. A lay preacher is defined as a person who is not a formally ordained cleric, but is appointed to lead church services in a religious denomination. Marie Robinson may have entertained dreams of one day preaching from the main pulpit in St. Thomas's, But in the spring of 1974, she was more than happy to speak the word of God to the small group of parishioners who were looking for a little more than the Sunday services offered. Yes, Reverend Vincent was a charismatic Christian, but his preaching style was still rather traditional. A fully realized charismatic preacher took command of the stage in a way that was joyful and ecstatic, inspirational and personal. No boring scripture read aloud for hours. No long, drawn-out rituals designed to put people to sleep. The charismatic movement was alive, and it was meant to make you feel alive and in communion with God. While Reverend Vincent definitely subscribed to all the fantastic paranormal aspects of charismatic Christianity, his preaching style hadn't fully caught up yet. That's where Marie Robinson came in. She offered a very different experience in the meetings that she led author, Mark Heel.
1: Let's just describe it. This is not a regular church service. Uh, you're meeting at somebody's house with a group of people, could be, maybe if the room's big enough, might be 12, 15, 20 people there. But it's very informal. Somebody's probably serving coffee or tea or biscuits, something like that. And you've got one person who's generally sort of leading the group, but in a very, there's no, nobody's wearing a uniform, nobody's wearing a dog collar or anything like that. It's 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 a person who's, probably an, an elder of the church. Everyone brings a Bible. Uh, everyone introduces themselves to one another. Uh, newcomers, especially, uh, would, would receive a huge, warm welcome. And, and not on the basis of you must believe in Jesus Christ to be part of this group. No, it's it's. we're glad you're here. Welcome. Tell us all about yourself. Oh, you've got kids. That's wonderful. Where do you live? Oh, I know it very well. Everyone would be local, friendly, happy to see you. Now, the singing and prayer, uh, which would occur, would, again, be very uh, informal. You might sing a few verses some, sometimes, but that's all, you know, fun is catch tunes. You will share those kind of things and pray for each other. So to say, uh, sorry, I don't know specifically what was going through Michael's mind, but I think it's important to, to stress that um, there'll be plenty of reasons to be interested and attracted to that uh, group without hearing a, a single word about God or faith. The Gauber Group met
0: in the living rooms of the members. It was considered a high honor to have your home selected as a host site for a meeting and was fully self-supported through member donations. Imagine for a moment you're Michael Taylor, troubled, worried, vulnerable, and importantly, a non-believer. You're extended an invitation from a neighbor who knows about your personal struggles and is genuinely worried. And of course, wants to be a good Christian. And as a good Christian, honestly believes the answer lies in a close relationship with Jesus. If you're only willing to accept His grace in exchange for accepting Him as your personal Savior, and a willingness to live the rest of your life according to His teachings, to the best of your ability. Sounds a bit much, but again, you're desperate, you have kids to feed you have no job. At the very least, you might be able to meet people and network within the community to maybe get a foot in the door somewhere. And at the very, very least, you can pretty much count on some, you know, nice tea and biscuits. So reluctantly, you agree. It's an otherwise unremarkable Tuesday night. You drop your kids at the grandparents' house and along with your wife, drive a few minutes into the countryside until you arrive at the home of a parishioner, an address given to you by that nosy neighbor, Barbara Wardman. The house is warm, inviting. You can hear laughter and mirth emanating from within. You knock on the door, and you're greeted by... a lovely young woman who introduces herself as Marie. Is this the woman of the house, you wonder? You look at your wife... She, too, has noticed the attractive young lady and gives you a little smile. It's a funny, stabilizing moment that long-term couples are familiar with. The acknowledgement of an attractive person immediately diffuses any tension there might have been. The Taylors were a happy, committed couple. And yes, the young woman who greeted them at the door was young, vibrant, and attractive. Both things were true. And the Taylors had every reason to believe that both of those things would remain true. Then they realized, through the course of introductions, that young Marie was, in fact, not the woman of the house, but rather the spiritual leader of the group.
1: From the research that I've done, I don't think that the Reverend's wife, Sally Vincent, I don't think she liked Marie so there was, there was, water wasn't smooth sailing. and this would be normal in any organisation. Not everybody always likes it at everybody else. But Marie was running this group and would have had a degree of spiritual authority. Nobody was watching Marie in the sense of nobody was telling her what to do. She was autonomous, really, but broadly under the guidance of the reverend. But he wouldn't have known on a day-to-day basis. I mean, it's quite possible that, you know, once every couple of months he might have popped in, but, but you know, said hi to everybody, you know, come along on Sunday. But there was no rigorous oversight.
0: Once the meeting got started, it's fair to say that the charismatic lay preacher who led the festivities of the Garber Christian Fellowship that night brought her A-game. It was Michael Taylor's first experience with someone speaking in tongues. It had also probably been a long time since he had any physical contact with another human being that wasn't a member of his family. And singing? Definitely not. But as the evening built to its dramatic crescendo, so too did Michael Taylor raise his voice in acknowledgement of the Holy Spirit. Music filled the room, filled his soul, and commanded his spirit to feel nothing but joy and magic and love and understanding. He looked to his wonderful, caring wife, the woman who had been at his side for so long. She felt it too, in a room full of strangers she'd known only a few hours. She felt completely at home, completely at peace.
1: They were hooked. And I think that all the evidence suggests is that they were joyously hooked. I mean, it wasn't, you know, some grim, you know, addiction. Is that there's a buzz to these things, right? There's a buzz. And I think this is what's what's important to get, is that in our modern life, we um, treat people slightly as objects. Uh, It's difficult to find companionship, and it's difficult sometimes to feel that that your spiritual needs by which i mean are you happy are you being fulfilled do you want to do good and this this is this is the other thing is that this is a choice you know come on we're we're all here because we want to be good. We want to be better people. We want to improve ourselves. We want to be better. We don't want to we don't want to be in sin, if you you know, like that term. We, 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 we don't want to be those people. We want to be better people. How do we do this? How do we all support this? We do this through worshiping God, we do this from supporting each other. This clicked with the tailors, and they're not alone in this. There's 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 many, many people who suddenly go along to a, a group like this. This fulfills a need of connection, of fellowship, of really, really interacting with people your neighbors and your friends and your local community.
0: As stated in an earlier episode, by the end of the night, the Taylors were newly converted Christians. Over the coming days, Michael and Christine would undertake the necessary steps to fully becoming what's called a born-again Christian, culminating in their baptism overseen by Reverend Vincent himself. For the first time in a long time, the Taylors felt happy. For the first time in a long time, Michael felt a sense of belonging, and he owed it all to Marie Robinson and the Garber Christian Fellowship group. More of the devil within after the break. The Taylors were less than 3 weeks into their new life as happy, confident Christians when two events occurred that would drastically change the course of their lives. One was easy to see coming. The other they wouldn't have suspected in a million years. As enthusiastic new members of the group, the Taylors offered their home to be used as a meeting space. Their offer was accepted, and now the feeling of conversion and acceptance was complete. These like-minded, Jesus-loving people were practicing their faith right in their own living room everything had quickly become, well, perfect. They had fellowship. They had hope for the future. They had a new spiritual foundation and direction for their lives. And they had each other. What could go wrong? If experience teaches us anything, it's this. When things suddenly get incredibly awesome, they can, just as suddenly, get incredibly terrible. The first totally predictable stumbling block was that Michael Taylor found himself hopelessly attracted to Marie Robinson. Marie knew it. Everyone knew it. Barbara Wardman was the first to express concern when she arrived a few minutes early to a fellowship meeting at the Taylors and found Marie sitting in a chair reading the Bible, with Michael standing behind her, his arms draped over her shoulders. Not anything overtly sexual, but clearly romantic and untoward. Marie did nothing to dissuade him. Even when Michael professed his love for her, making sure she knew it was a harmless, quote, Christian love. It was, in fact, a love that could hurt no one, Michael is reported to have proclaimed. But it's important to point out that the second event that would ultimately lead to unspeakable violence had already occurred, and Michael loved her anyway. Shortly after the Taylors' conversion and subsequent offer of their home to be used by the group, a most curious thing happened, right in the Taylors' living room. As a setup for what I'm about to convey, remember, the Taylors had already been exposed to the vibrant and joyous Marie Robinson. Speaking in tongues on a regular basis and imploring the rest of her flock to do the same and let the Holy Spirit take over and guide their voices as they were raised in prayer and exaltation. The tailors, especially Michael, who was very keen on being considered both a good Christian and a good student of Marie's, was quick to follow, proudly speaking and praying in tongues for the rest of the group to see. So they trusted Marie and were comfortable with her behavior. Behavior that just a few weeks earlier, they would have thought to be insane.
1: Yes, Michael and Christine, from all accounts, were speaking in tongues very quickly. So this is joyous. This is what I'm trying to say. This is all joyous. This is great. This is fantastic. Now, there comes a time when something goes wrong. And it's an older lady in the group, a lady called Mavis Smith. Mavis is having some problems. And as we've said before, in these groups, you know, it's very often that you'll talk about whatever, whatever issues you're having. And so Mavis does this. She says that she's been feeling very low over the last few weeks and um, she's got some kind of problem. Now, Marie decides that on hearing this testimony from Mavis, that this is something which would be helped by an exorcism. Again, I have to say this, I don't think there's any many reputable Christians that I have talked to who would leap from a position of somebody saying... God, I'm feeling low to saying, right, you know, this is the, you know, the devil needs to be cast out. That is very extreme, it sounds to me. But nevertheless, from all accounts, it's what happened. And I think that gives you some insight into the intensity of Marie's belief in two things. First of all, obviously, the belief in this form of intercessional Christianity, but secondly, also a belief in a, a confidence in herself, I think. It shows an arrogance, I believe, personally.
0: So poor old Mavis Smith made the terrible decision to share feelings with the group that weren't pure joy and love and ecstasy and communion with God? Well, on Marie Robinson's watch, that would not stand. Using her keen sense of discernment developed over what must have been months, maybe, of observing others with questionable skill, performing a highly controversial and at times dangerous ritual on a whim? In someone's living room? Before the tea and biscuits were served? Wow, what could go wrong?
1: And she says, right, I'm going to uh, lay my hands upon you and cast out the demon from you. Mavis, and I have to say one quite understandably, reacts very badly to this. And the two of them have a almost a tussle Mavis tries to get away from Marie, and and it, it all descends into something very very unpleasant. With with Marie trying to cast out a demon from this this poor elderly lady, and the elderly lady trying to bash her off. It's very very intense. It's very intense indeed the exorcist believes that they are spiritually but sometimes physically wrestling with a a demonic power it's very very intense this isn't a casual thing i come up to you lay my hand on your shoulder and say come on brandon let's get the devil out it's it's this is something which involves it's it's quite physical i think that's 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 crucial it's it's quite it's physical and intense and um marie said that in later the inquest she said that mavis reacted with great animosity Yes, I mean, I, I mean, great animosity, I think, is a rather English way of saying she <laughs> wanted to bash me in the chops. Very, very unpleasant. The meeting turned from being something lovely to being something horrendous.
0: So we have a scared elderly woman who suddenly feels the need to defend herself physically from the leader of their church group. It was reported that Marie Robinson was stuttering like an epileptic as she attempted to exorcise the supposed demon that made Mavis Smith sad. Why not ask her how she was doing? Maybe ask her why she was feeling down. Was she lonely at home? Maybe the weather put her in a funk. No, it was the devil. And Marie was there to engage in spiritual warfare in an attempt to raise the spirits of Mavis Smith because, apparently, there could be no sadness in the Gauber Christian Fellowship Group, but for the devil's doing. Now, despite this strange and violent turn of events, Marie remained in charge. And most importantly for our story, Michael Taylor remained smitten. It wasn't long after the Mavis Smith incident that the unspoken but clearly obvious attractions that Michael felt toward Marie had become a problem. A problem both within the Taylors' marriage as well as within the fellowship.
1: After that incident, the two Taylors start to diverge. It, it looks as if Michael was no doubt freaked out by this, but he trusted Marie for reasons which may not have been completely spiritual. Suddenly, a period of reassessment seems to have come to Christine. Hang on a minute, Christine suddenly seems to say to herself. Wait a minute, we're involved in this group, which is great, but that was very unpleasant, what I just witnessed. These beliefs obviously have a slightly darker, more intense side to them. This isn't quite the unalloyed joy, which which I was thinking it was, one. And two... Now I come to think about it, my husband is spending a lot of time with this younger, attractive woman. And I know that it's meant to be for purely spiritual reasons. But let me just reanalyze this relationship because I'm starting to get rather uncomfortable with it. I would rather like to have my husband back, thank you very much, rather than him spending another few hours in prayer or spiritual conversation with Marie Robinson. What's going on here exactly?
0: It was Barbara Wardman, the neighbor who originally invited the Taylors to the group, who suggested that Michael confront the issue head-on at a group level. His wife Christine agreed, and soon after, Michael and his crush Marie were climbing the stairs in the Taylor home to discuss the problem in the privacy of a guest bedroom while the rest of the group waited. More after the break. As far as we can tell, the only people in that bedroom were Michael and Marie. But their stories match. During their discussion, Michael openly confessed his feelings for Marie, and he attempted a romantic, sexual advance. He tried to kiss her. Marie, in response, to use the parlance of our times,
1: She friend-zoned him, effectively.
0: Yeah. Firmly in the friend-zone. So now we have the pair descending the stairs to rejoin the group and make a proclamation. Marie states that they have differing passions for one another, but those differences had been discussed and overcome. They had indeed witnessed a miracle in that room. More specifically, they had benefited from a miracle in that room. To which Michael added, it was a great victory for God. But then, perhaps, Marie took the confession a bit too
1: far. She said, uh, no, I, I'm, we've talked about this and we've won a, a great victory for God. Yes, we have passions for one another, but we've overcome them and you don't have anything to worry about. Michael, he stands no chance with me at all. So so you don't need to worry about it, Christine. We just tried to make a pass for me and don't worry, I turned her it down, it's all fine. <laughs> now, now, imagine how embarrassing that must have been for... Michael, here is this woman he has this very, very intense relationship with. Not a woman he's he's married to, but his wife is right there in the room. And he effectively now has the fact that he's made a pass of Marie Robinson, described to the house group and his wife by the woman right in front of him. And not only that, but he's been told quite firmly that he's not going to get anywhere. Now, from a strictly male ego perspective, I mean, that must be very crushing and um, an embarrassing. I cringe at the thought of what there must have been like.
0: Michael stood by stoically as the object of his affection displayed his abject shame for all to see. His wife, his friends, his God. It was then that something long dormant within the depths of Michael Taylor suddenly awoke violence. Michael Taylor, mild-mannered, polite Englishman, reacted in a way no one could have anticipated.
1: It affected Michael in a very, very strange way. And I can see what happened. A, A switch was triggered. I think suddenly the scales fell from Michael's eyes. He he realised he wasn't going to get anywhere with this woman, but it was all in front of his wife. And that rather than admitting rather shamefacedly that this is what had happened, he attacked Marie. He went for uh, Marie and started screaming at her in in tongues, apparently, and pretty much assaulted her, tried to attack her and was pulled off by the, the members of the group. Marie paints this in terms of being... Suddenly Michael was possessed by the devil, or words to that effect, and, and, and attacked me. My feeling is that I think this it's quite clear what was happening. My, Michael was diverting his shame and intense uh, embarrassment into hostility. We see this with guys all the time. I've seen this with guys all the time. You know, the, the, the object of your affection is put up on a pedestal until she turns you down, which, at which point she's called all the names under the sun. And I, I think this is effectively a version of that.
0: Michael Taylor lost control and attacked the woman that he had only moments before attempted to seduce while alone in a bedroom. He grabbed her by the throat. He clawed at her face. It took most of the members of the fellowship to restrain him. Typically, this type of behavior would be attributed to a troubled man in troubled times that needs some counseling and probably a talk with the police if Marie deemed it necessary. But these weren't typical times for michael and marie wasn't your typical preacher
1: you, you have this mild-mannered person that's clearly used to bottling up his, his emotions and and you might suggest that michael was quite repressed this is to do with good evil god uh demons um this is to do with a new belief system and he's steeped in this now so so now he's He's seeing this like Marie sees it, which is that violence is not because you're a repressed person and that you're, perhaps you uh, had a troubled childhood or whatever it might be. No, no, no. This is to do with being invaded by a demon. And Marie suddenly begins to be seen as evil, as the enemy and so I don't find it that surprising, to be honest with you. You have this uncorked emotions, this heady mix of emotions we've just talked about with friendship and sex and marriage all mixed into it, suddenly with the, the, this new belief system, this new way of seeing the world.
0: It was clear to Marie that
1: Michael Taylor was possessed.
0: Given her recent failure exercising the demons from poor Mavis Smith... Marie thought better of attempting to help Michael on her own. Instead, she decided upon a course of observe and report and ultimately took her concerns to the best person she could think of for the job. The self-described enthusiastic exorcist at whose feet she had learned. The Reverend Peter Vincent. On the next episode of The Devil Within... Will explore the ancient rite of exorcism, identify the demons thought to have invaded Michael Smith, and gain a clearer understanding of Reverend Vincent. Although Mr. Heal summed it up quite nicely when he said,
1: If you are a hammer, then everything looks like a nail.
0: That's next time on The Devil Within. The Devil Within Season 2, The Demons of Yorkshire, is a cavalry audio production produced by Brandon Morgan and Zach McNeese. Zach also edited and mixed all episodes. Music by Soundstripe and Blue Dot Sessions. Our executive producers are Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. I'm Brandon Morgan, your writer and narrator.